Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hey, this is Kyone Wolf. I'm here with Betsy Kaplan in your podcast feed saying thanks for tuning in, first of all. And please keep this podcast going by calling 1-800-584-2788 or by going to wnpr.org slash donate. That's the place where you become a member or you renew your membership. And most importantly, you keep us going. And we can't do this without you. Kyone and I, along with the, the rest of our team, put on the Colin McEnroe Show every day of the week for you because we love to do this for you and we love the show as well. So give us a call, 1-800-584-2788 or go online at wnpr.org. Enjoy the show. Okay, the first thing I have to tell you is that my voice sounds like this when I'm talking right now, but when you hear the rest of this show, it's going to sound like I have a terrible cold, because I had a terrible cold when we were recording this show in front of a live audience at the Washington School. This is a show about the normalization of hate. That's what I called it initially as I began to build the show and solicit panel members. Then as I got this terrific panel together, I, I think... Well, that's still the topic of the show, but it it really is about where do these extremist moments come from and where do the people come from who populate these groups and movements? And I think we wound up having a pretty subtle and nuanced and detailed conversation. I was thrilled by it, even though it's a pretty dark topic. So here we go right after the news. this panel, the normalization of hate, it is not something you can get away from anymore. You know, it's it's somewhere. Every school administrator is tensed for the next incident. We see it in our politics, we see it in our media, and it seems to be stronger and more prevalent than I remember it being. So it's one of the reasons I, I, I thought this would be I think something we really need to talk about. We've got a great panel for you. I want to maybe begin by just introducing them. Way out there on the outer rim is Richard Wilson, Professor Richard Wilson from UConn Law School. Next to him is Jennifer Hurt, Gilbert Stark Professor of Christian Ethics at Yale Div School. Her scholarship includes work in political theology. I should say that uh, Richard Wilson and then the uh, person sitting next to Jennifer, Molly Land, have done a lot of work on online insight and radicalization via hate speech. Molly Land is also from UConn Law School. And then sitting close to me, Steve Ginsburg, Regional Director for the Anti-Defamation League, who's on the front lines of a lot of of the stuff that we'll talk about tonight. But I think the first thing we need to talk about is what it is we're talking about. What does this term mean? I mean, hate is a really imprecise term. And so I think I'm kind of going to go around the rim here. And yeah, there's hate, there's nativism, there's nationalism, there's political extremism. There are a lot of other isms that somehow or other fall into this. And yeah, there is incitement. So maybe just starting out over there with you, Richard, I mean, what is it that you think we're talking about? What falls under this rubric? I can tell you one thing, one group of people who don't believe that they're engaging in hate speech 
are hate groups. They don't, they don't self-identify that way, so we can't start with them. Where do you start? I would start with the uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation has hate crimes set out on its website, and you can see the uh, definition of a hate crime there, which is an attack on property or person on the basis of, and I'm probably going to forget some, but ethnicity, race, national origin, gender, sexual orientation, disability, religion. I might have missed one. So there, there are federally defined hate crimes, and they include a, a pro, an attack on property or person on the basis of that. Also, we have guidelines on, on Facebook and Twitter which define hate speech. Now, those aren't, of course, hard law, but it does give some guidance on what those new companies, which do moderate a lot of content, consider hate speech. All right, so let's go to a theologian. Well, Colin, I was struck in your invitation to us, you connected hate with the denial of human equality. And you know, I think the people who engage in hate speech would probably affirm human equality. It's much easier to, to affirm human equality in general, and then to get down to, well, but although human beings are equal, this group has lost its right to be treated the same way as this group because of some feature that they have. So quickly, the affirmation of, of universal equality becomes undermined, and there are justifications for treating this group differently because of some moral failing on their part or some, you know, they're dirty, they're lazy, they're what, whatever it is. Yeah, it does seem to me that one component of this is deciding that not all people are equal, and that the people who have a lower status, as you say, needed to be tr need to be treated differently, mm -hmm. usually with that minimum scorn and sometimes something more vehement than scorn. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that's in there somewhere. I don't know, Molly, you want to add to this? Yeah, thank you. The, I think in addition to concern about othering, about affirmations of, of inequality and, and explicit threats, one of the things that I've been really concerned about is actually the low-level kind of corrosive effect that speech is having on institutions, on our democracy, and on our society, on our trust in other people. So I'm worried not only about the specific manifestations of threats, of hate speech and, and violence that's carried out pursuant to that, but also the more systemic effects of being exposed to corrosive systemic harassment, for example, online. Yeah. So, Steve, how about you? When, I, when we think about hate and when we teach about hate, we usually, in almost all of our programs, we talk about what we call a pyramid of hate. And it really starts with words and bias and teasing and jokes that usually aren't funny. And it, it goes up to discrimination and acts of bias, and then it keeps going and it gets more violent. And I think what we're seeing right now is hate sort of across that whole pyramid other than the top where we're, we're, not, we're not there yet, where we've been a couple times this century in different places, but here we are seeing hate in schools where it's almost an expression of hate that could be innocent or unknowing, all the way to the more extreme violent kind of hate. I want to stay with this for a second because, uh, unsurprisingly, not everybody who is referred to as a hate group thinks of themselves that way. And actually, when you do, when you type hate group or hate speech into a search engine, you pretty much get directed to various pages from the ADL or the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is, I mean, that's sort of where you go because the, obviously hate group doesn't take you to Daily Stormer. That's not what they think, how they think of themselves. Or I mean, hate groups want to recruit 
And they find it hard to recruit if they put their message out pure and simple. And so they need to hide their message a little, which is why Richard Spencer, who's a neo-Nazi, created the term alt-right, which the media used for a number of years. It stopped using that just in the last, I would say, four or five months or so. But they used this term, and it was kind of a gateway drug term that could get people in who are maybe interested and curious and wanting to hear more without actually saying, you know, we're neo-Nazis and we like to say Heil Hitler and goose step around. It was an attempt to make them legitimate. So Richard Spencer was wearing nice suits and nice watches, and, and he was really has been the most successful white supremacist of the last you know, several decades. And so I think we have to be careful to say it's not simply in the eye of the beholder. I think if you're a white supremacist group, you're a hate group. There's no way of, of dodging that. The other thing that I wanted to establish right at the beginning or talk about right at the beginning is I think everybody in this room feels as though there's been some kind of steady growth in the phenomenon that we're talking about. But one of the questions I think a lot of people have is, is there actual steady growth or has a long, slow background hum kind of come out of the shadows and does it now feel more comfortable out in the spotlight a little bit more? In other words, are these movements acquiring new adherents or are they just comfortable making themselves more visible now? I'm guessing the answer is going to turn out to be both, but... It's probably both. It's, um, but it also in some ways might be not neither, but not as, not as bad as we think. So at ADL, we think that sort of the, the amazing thing about the United States of America is how it has used, put this country together from diversity and worked over the last 50, 60 years to maintain free speech, but also have there be a social price that people paid when they attacked someone based on what group they're a part of. I think in some ways we're still there, but we've, what we've seen is an erosion of that wall, right? Mm -hmm. the, the social price being paid is not what it used to be, and there's been an emboldening and enabling of lots of people with hateful views to share them. I think that the question, though, is are there more of them? Mm -hmm. I think there are new ones. I also think that, but I can't tell you that the numbers have necessarily grown. These movements, when you look at the people who identify clearly with white supremacists or other movements, they go up and down. They're not really good at organizing and staying together very well. Uh, they, they have a lot of infighting. So they might be losing as many as here and not, but the social media element and the people who have found their voice in that way there's a much louder chorus there and a much larger chorus. Yeah, Molly, I was going to go to you anyway. Yes. The internet theorist Clay Shirky talks about how people don't understand what Facebook is good at. Facebook is good at helping people find each other if they have very specialized kinds of interests. Now, it can be really wonderful if, they, if you suffer from a disease or a syndrome and you think you're alone and nobody else has it, you can find all these other people. The problem is that you can find all these other kind of people too. I, I think the internet plays a big role in what we're talking about. No, for sure. And actually, that was exactly the example I was going to go for, which was one of the things that the internet was heralded as bringing is the long tail. This idea that media didn't have to be focused on only the things that were popular and interesting to 60% of the people, that there would be forums and places for people who wanted to get together with other people who like to knit, knit hats for cats or, or something like that. But also, I mean, your example of, of finding other communities of people who struggle with similar medical issues. I have a friend for whom 
whom Facebook has been a lifesaver because she's been able to connect with other people who have had similar experiences. So it is true that it enables the long tail. It enables there to be conversations that wouldn't otherwise occur, but that also means potentially it enables people who have very extreme views to find each other and to um, reinforce each other's views. Now, does that mean there are more people being exposed or that the those that long tail is actually now just coming to light, a long tail that's always been with us? And I think the answer is probably both. I think it's an empirical question that we haven't answered. One of the things that worries me, though, that I think is new is that when people find each other and they reinforce each other's views, I do think it's possible that they may be more likely to act on it or more likely to... I mean, we've seen an increase in hate crimes in this country. And so I don't know if there are necessarily more extreme views out there, but I do think that there's a visibility of those views that creates a kind of tolerance for attacks, for violence, for hate speech that I think we didn't have before. Steve, one way that you could have answered my question, I mean, you're, you're too eloquent and subtle to have done it, just talk about how much your phone rings. I mean, I'm assuming over the last three, four years, your phone's ringing more in a bad way. Yes. Uh, There's no question that if you're measuring reports of incidents of hate, those numbers are much higher than they were a few years ago. I think they've they've steadied off. 2017 and 18 looked similar, but they're much larger than 16, Mm -hmm. 15. It's historical levels. We've been tracking these things for... 50 years, and we're at those levels. At some point in this conversation, we will have to talk about what I constantly refer to as the big orange elephant in the room, but we're not going to do it quite yet. Because, Richard, I think that's wrong to do, and one of your specialties is kind of looking at this in a much more global perspective. So here in the United States, we know that one of the tipping points towards more a kind of identity-based extremism came somewhere around 2000 when the census made it clear uh, for the first time when America was going to become a majority-minority country. I think it's 2047. And so that began a whole period of anxiety. The election of Obama began another period of anxiety among identity extremists. We can look at these sort of American currents and think of them as very much our own problem and one that's contained at our shores, except they're not. There's this, I mean, well, you, you take it away. We're in a a global wave of populism. It's not just the United States and any idea that America was truly an exception to all other patterns of politics and economics worldwide. I think that argument's been severely undermined. So we have Putin in Russia. We have Duterte in the Philippines, who brags about personally killing drug dealers. Erdogan in Turkey, Bolsonaro in Brazil, who once said to a woman in Congress, I would rape you if you weren't so ugly. So these kinds of politicians, most of them were very marginal in the past. They've come right into the mainstream, quite similar to Trump. And you see this across Europe. You see it in the number of far-right parties, Nigel Farage in Britain. You know, these individuals were very much on the margins of politics, and they've come roaring into the center. And, and some countries have dominated their politics. And their language is, is racist, it's xenophobic, it's very graphic in its attacks on minority groups. And they're complex, and you indicated some of the causal factors. There are a complex number of factors, but I think ultimately it goes back to the 2008 crash. That's really when you start to see this rising tide of populism. So at risk of sounding like an economic determinist, I think it is the economic stupid. Also coinciding with a number of other factors, the environmental crisis, which is driving 
migrants across the world from Africa into Europe and from Latin America into the United States. There are a number of, of kind of complex factors there. The Syrian war, which drove about 10 million refugees in total into Jordan, Turkey, and then into, into Europe. So it's complex, but we do see this phenomenon being global. Jennifer, I'm going to have you lead us in an ethical exercise, a whole area of ethics and theology, which I would group under the question, is it okay to punch Richard Spencer in the nose? Now, this isn't a purely hypothetical question because somebody did punch Richard Spencer in the nose on camera. Everybody could see it. There was no matter how Gandhi-like we want to think we are, a certain grim satisfaction that one might experience. One might even watch the clip more than once. Um, But that doesn't make it, to use an imprecise term, right. So, I don't know, get us started here. (laughs) Okay. Um, No, it's not not okay to punch Richard Spencer in the nose. Why isn't it okay? Seriously, why isn't it okay to punch Richard Spencer in the nose? He wants to hurt people. He wants to hold people down. He invented the term alt-right to confuse us about what he really wants to do. So why isn't it okay to punch him in the nose? Because you don't have the authorization to use force (laughs) against him. So there are... It's assault. (laughs) Yes. Since it would be an unauthorized use of force, it would constitute assault and so on. So, I mean, you know, as far as that goes, might there be a point in the deterioration of our society at which some sort of use of force might be justified? That that becomes a much bigger and more complex question. Right. Um, We're really in trouble if that happens. Yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. Um, You know, but but there's also the the question of what what is an effective response to hate. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, punching Richard Spencer in the nose is really a very ineffective response. You've become enraged and you've responded in rage, and that will ignite more hatred. And hatred is not a very good cure for hatred. That's why, you know, I mean, I do think this phenomenon of worldwide populism is very real. It's, it's complex. No, we need to, part of what we need to do is have some some empathy with the people who are being drawn into these populist movements and try to understand what, what are the fears that are, that are driving this, to try to rehumanize the people that are being co-opted by this message of hate, rather than being drawn into hating them, because that is really not a solution. You know, Molly, in your work, I encountered the term speech duties, which I thought, I mean, if we're not going to punch Richard, there are other options. And I thought, that, I don't know whether you invented that term or not, but it's, explain what, what is meant by that. The idea of speech duties draws on a tradition of pairing duties with rights. So in the human rights tradition, the emphasis has been on rights naturally, but also that these rights come with corresponding duties. And it's not that your enjoyment of rights depends on you fulfilling certain duties, because there may be people who can't or, or aren't able to do that. But the idea of the the piece that you mentioned is to try to revive this concept of duties and say that when we act as speakers in the world, we should not simply be worried about whether we have the right to speak or not, which is my big critique of First Amendment jurisprudence in the U.S., which is it's very focused on simply does the speaker have the right to speak or not. I think speech duties would be a way of reorienting us on the idea of what impact does our speech have on others. And when we have that orientation, we, I think, naturally begin to be drawn into responsibility or we become more responsible or accountable for the effects of our speech. Steve, uh, how are you thinking about all this? I mean, it is called the Anti-Defamation League. It's not called the Let's Talk About Defamation League. (laughs) Um. What I think about, uh, like, the 
the responses that are, they're pretty extreme examples, not, not extremistic, well, extreme examples of sort of heroic efforts by people I've seen that have actually changed someone's mind. I work a lot with former extremists, and there are certain groups that their whole purpose is to, you know, extract people from extremist groups. And whenever I hear those stories from people who are in extremist groups, each one of them says it's because a person or multiple people who didn't owe them any kindness treated them with respect and gave them kindness. Whether it was online, and there are many examples of those, or in person, or someone gave them a job. So, um, and actually, the, to bring it home to Connecticut, a few years ago there was a, a mosque in Meriden, Connecticut, that a person who lived nearby actually shot into the, mm-hmm. through the window of the mosque and didn't injure anyone, but was apprehended and was very Islamophobic. And he went to prison, and the people who ran the mosque visited him every week in prison. He is now a completely repentant, amazing ally and advocate for you know, all different things against hate and with that group. Those are extreme examples, but they are the ones that sort of make me remember that forgiveness is going to be a part of this. And I don't want to be confused with normalization. We can't accept mm-hmm. it. But when things happen, we need to be ready to address them, confront them, and if people are repentant, we need to work with them to figure out how they make it up to us. This is a great panel. I mean, these people are terrific. Um, We're going to take a little break here right now. We'll be back in just a second. Hey, it's Kion Wolf here with Betsy Kaplan taking a second out of your podcast. I know you thought you were totally off the hook from listening to the live fundraising, but we just want to take a second to say thanks for tuning in. And also, please help us keep this coming into your podcast feed. The number to call to be a member or renew your membership is 1-800-584-2788 or wnpr.org slash donate. And you have lots of advantages listening to the show on podcast because we're only going to speak to you for about 20 <laughs> seconds, maybe 50 seconds, mm-hmm. unlike five minutes. So reward us with the fact that we're speaking to you less time. We're taking less time out of your enjoyment of this great show that you're listening to. Give us some support to keep these shows going, no matter how you listen to them. 1-800-584-2788 or go online at WNPR.org. So um, there's so many things at stake here, too. Oh, actually, so, which, do you yeah. have your hand about Yeah, that? I wanted to mention a group that started in Germany and Sweden called Jajar and they're now called I Am Here. There are about 140,000 of them, and they're a group that goes on Twitter and Facebook and challenges people who use hate speech, who use incendiary language, and they challenge them very delicately. They simply say, do you have to use that kind of language? Why are you saying this? They're not aggressive, they're not hostile, they don't tell them they're idiots, they simply challenge them. And they find that, so they argue, according to their research, that 70% of the posts are then taken down. So there is a lot to be said for simply, politely challenging people who use hate speech online. And it does seem to work quite effectively, and that is a growing movement, especially among young people. However, it's not enough. And the social media companies need to more aggressively police the speech on the platform. They can do so. They are not bound by First Amendment. They are private clubs. There's another final point, which is what these companies do is run ads. They now have 60% of the world's advertising revenue on social media, on Facebook, and Twitter. That's a lot of money. 
And that's why Facebook made a profit of $55 billion last year. Now, what they do is they have to get eyeballs on screens. They want people to look more. And in doing so, they've actually highlighted incendiary speech. They're elevating hate speech on your profile because you're more likely to look at it. So that's a question for all of you. Should social media companies highlight hate speech? Should they treat it neutrally? Or should they bury it at the bottom of the feed? And there are all kinds of freedom of speech consequences for each of those three strategies. This is kind of an interesting area, right? This is the stuff you want to see. This is why we're showing it to you, because you want to see it, because John Calvin was right. You're totally depraved, you know, so here it is. You want it, we're going to give it to you. That seems like a moral dodge to a certain degree. On the other hand, it also might contain a certain amount of moral truth in the sense of, why is this stuff out here? Because there's something in a lot of us that is responding to this somehow. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know if anybody gets off the hook here. No, I, I mean, I think that's right. I think I was hearing uh, Steve's example of the extreme responses and how effective they can be and, and thinking, yes, you know, this is this was Jesus' message. You know, you, you eat with the tax collector. You reach out to the outcast and to the sinner and so on. And that you have that face-to-face -face transformation. You encounter hate with love and it's transformative. And and yet, of course, that's only a very small part of the story about how religion is wrapped up in hate and tribalism, and, and certainly it's been religious believers who've, who've been often the ones who are perpetrating hate. And so I think there is something about original sin and human depravity that we, we should be listening to John Calvin on this and not be overly rosy about the resources that come from faith. But on the other hand, I think our faith traditions do provide a powerful, powerful resource in that they tell us that our loyalties are to something higher than our in-group and that we always have to look beyond the boundaries of the comfortable and cozy alignments that we have. Yeah, Steve, I feel like we're going to keep coming back to this, but that is sort of the question of, you know, how do we articulate the moral response when, in fact, what we're hearing even from the Internet companies is, oh, no, people like this stuff. People want to see this stuff. On the other hand, we're living in a society where we're kind of committed to the idea of not overly restricting content and expression. I don't know. How does that go for you? It's one of those things that I, we talked a little bit about at dinner. I kind of go back and forth. And mm -hmm. what, where I wind up is right, we're this country where you know, Louis Brandeis said that the marketplace of ideas is what's going to drive us to the next level. And we need to be exchanging those ideas and the best ones will rise to the top. I am at a moment where that is not what I'm seeing on social media. And I don't think it's what most of us are seeing. So I think there is an, I don't know if it's the government that should be regulating what social media companies' algorithms do, but I think there needs to be societal pressure on them to figure out how they're going to push us to our better instincts. It doesn't have to necessarily be political, but it can be not fueling one hate video after the next. And when they get reports of videos or tweets or whatever, I think that they're going to need to use some artificial intelligence to find those things. Actually, our 
ADL is working with all those companies to enhance their algorithms in good ways. We worked with them at first to set out those terms of service that are the ones that can get you kicked off, but they all interpret them different ways. And so we just need to be pressuring them. I think that ultimately they do get to make their choice. I will not be calling for them to be deplatformed, but I will call for the ones that are purely about hate. Uh, we will be pressuring the companies that host and provide the servers for them to question whether they want to work with them. And, and Molly, we would be remiss if we didn't. I mean, first of all, there are these, you know, the kind of mainstream platforms, and they're trying to make rules. A lot of this speech also takes place in other parts of the web, and it goes from 4chan to 8chan. Gab was, I think, for the Christchurch shooter, one of the places to put up manifestos. And those places, in some t- cases, can be deplatformed or stripped away from their servers. But they just seem to run to another corner, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that it is an inevitable game of cat and mouse. And actually, I think law enforcement has also raised the concern that if platforms are shut down, it may make it harder to do investigations. You know, I think, I think Steve, we were talking about this earlier, that on the one hand, yes, I think it takes away the visibility of some of those platforms. It may drive people into, you know, darker corners of the web. On the other hand, I think there's something to this idea that removing a platform for someone who has repeatedly violated the terms of service of a, a particular service who's repeatedly called for hate and called for violence. I think that there's nothing that says, I mean, and and I have to say, I'm very worried about the free speech aspects of the Mm -hmm. the things we're talking about, but there's nothing that says that you, you have to be able to go viral. Right. I mean, I think that the, free, the, the right to freedom of expression doesn't entail the right to sort of trample over right, um, the, a range of other public interests to have your message heard by as many people as possible. On the other hand, I will inject one level of concern here, which is I am not necessarily entirely comfortable with private companies making all of these decisions without any oversight or accountability. You know, I think companies are in various ways trying to address this problem. Facebook has a new oversight board that some of you may have heard about. I think that they are steps in the right direction, but I think that, I, you know, governments want companies to do this. There are actually a number of laws either already on the books or proposed that would make companies liable for unlawful speech on their platforms. And it, it has a lot of potential to really chill speech. If a platform's faced with, you know, 50 million in fines versus let's just take this down, they're just going to take it down if there's any questions. So I think... Yes, I think that there is a need for action, but I think that it needs to be very considered because the unintended consequences for speech are are very significant. Yeah, maybe we could worry about free speech a little bit more here because I think it's worth doing. I mean, look, Richard, knit into the fabric of our society. It's not just the First Amendment. There is a prevailing attitude that people should be able to say things. Up to some line, people should be able to say things that speech should not be unduly repressed. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. Worry, so, uh, worry along with us. Yeah, we have to remind ourselves that encouraging the abolition of slavery was illegal in every southern state in 1840. That a significant percentage of the American population thinks Black Lives Matter is a hate speech group. And if you look at the history of First Amendment law in the 20th century, legal regulation of incitement was mostly used against socialists. The legal regulation of threat was mostly used against African Americans. So the state has used First Amendment law before 1969, when things really started to change, pretty, you know, censoriously. And so we have to remind ourselves of that. 
At the same time, we could enforce the laws we have more consistently and more clearly. We have laws on the book that you can't make a, a true threat against another individual. We have laws on the books that say you can't incite another person to commit a crime. They're seldom charged, they're seldom followed through on, and they could be enforced more aggressively and, and more consistently than they are. Then there's Germany. So Germany in 2017 passed a law which said that if a social media company did not remove content that manifestly violated German law, they would be fined 5 million euros a day up to 50 million euros. People predicted the collapse of German democracy. You know, people predicted that this would have deleterious effects. It hasn't. The social media companies have complied. Democracy is thriving in Germany and they have enforced their hate speech rules because they just accepted one million Syrian refugees, which is a remarkable social experiment. That was their decision, but they decided they couldn't leave those one million Syrian refugees exposed to hatred and violence online. So there's a spectrum of, of choice. All right, here we go. Live from Watkinson School with this great panel here. We're gonna be back in just a second here, but how about a big round of applause? Knocking my mic over. Wow. I was teaching a few years ago down at Jennifer's University, and one of my students was from Singapore, and he was one of my favorite students. But Singapore had a state-controlled press until the Internet broke it. And he basically thought, he didn't think we had too much freedom of speech, but we, he thought the press kind of had too much power to hurt people, that, you know, the fact that, you know, that, that journalism has a very free hand, that, you know, absence of malice and stuff like that. It wasn't, it wasn't a good enough standard for him. And it was interesting to hear that from somebody who isn't imbued with our set of values. And I guess that kind of allows me, I mean, it's been alluded to already, but, you know, Jennifer, one of the things that journalism is struggling with right now is how to cover hate. And we hear it a lot. I mean, the New York Times has a, a couple of times in the last few years done pretty lengthy profiles of Richard Spencer type people. You know, here's who this guy is. Here's how he got to be who he is. Here's what else he does with his time. And there are, are a lot of people who do see that as normalizing. I grew up or I came into my professional life with this idea of, look, we know something, we're supposed to tell the public about it. So those are two values that are kind of in conflict right there. It's, it certainly seems as though these things need to be covered, people need to be aware of them, but you're not, you don't need to provide a platform for these, these people to get their view of reality out into the public. You don't want to amplify their message. And so there's a delicate act to perform there in terms of how do you describe what they're doing, to what extent do you use their own self-descriptions. Actually, there is a connection to the great orange elephant that you alluded to earlier. One of the recent stories about Facebook and, and some of the other platforms has focused on how they treat politicians. Mm. A lot of our president's speech violates the terms of service of Twitter. And, and again, it, it, it's not unlawful because it doesn't, may not rise to the level of a crime. Or, and actually, I think Richard can talk more about that. But it clearly, you know, would be in contradiction to the Twitter rules, for example. But the platforms have decided to create an exception for politicians, in part based on newsworthiness, with the idea that to take down 
tweets of a prominent politician would actually prevent the public from understanding more about the world that they live in and what their politicians are doing. On the other hand, we know from you know the research on inciting speech that the status of the speaker, the authority that they wield in the eyes of the listener, you know, in the, the ears of the listener, are, are actually indicative of, of the impact that the speech is going to have. And so I think it's it's a really I don't have a solution, but it's a it's a real life problem that I'm not sure that platforms know how to solve. Steve, this is I think a direct direct issue for you because in some ways you want the press to cover incidents of hate. You don't want swastikas sprayed on walls of schools and have the press turned a blind eye to it. But then there's that normalizing problem. I mean, maybe you don't want me to do a profile of my local neo-Nazi to try to figure out how he got to be who he is. I don't know. What, how do you thread that needle? Well, the, the one common thing between you know, the kid who does a swastika in a school and the member of an extremist group is they really do like attention. Mm-hmm. They, they, and many, many of them crave it. Any news is good news. Any attention they get is, is exactly what they're looking for. So it's been a challenge for us for decades working with communities and schools when there is a swastika and the pr- principal calls us and said, should I tell everybody? Is, the, is shining a light on it the disinfectant that will eliminate it? Or, mm-hmm. or will it just create copycats. And we've, we've seen it sort of go both in both directions in the past few weeks here in Connecticut. Darien, there was a middle school that had swastika. The teacher communicated with the school community. It didn't get a lot of press attention, but the community knew. And they said and are doing all the right things, teaching the kids, informing the parents, investigating it. A week later, there was another swastika, right? So the copycat issue is real. On the extremist side, it's sort of a different approach. How many of you knew that there was a uh, synagogue in Newtown a couple weeks ago that had, was covered in white supremacist graffiti? All right, pretty, pretty good numbers. The Newtown synagogue and the chief of police there decided that they weren't going to hide it, but they were not going to provide photographic evidence of it to the community or to the media. I think that Newtown did what was right for Newtown. That is a town that has had a lot of experience with horrible things. They they wanted to deal with this for their community, and so they did not give the media what they knew it wanted. It was a very conscious choice. You know, I'm going to put a little bit more pressure on Jennifer to help me as a journalist. Because, I mean, the truth is, journalists have belief systems. or We have a belief system. And our belief system is, we should go get the damn picture. You know, I mean, if there's a picture of that synagogue with all that stuff on it, if it can be got, we should get it. If we get it, we should share it. Because that's what we do. We're not in the business of knowing stuff and not sharing it with the public. And it can make us a little under-nuanced, and it can blind us to some of the questions that other people might want us to consider. And I think what scares us is if we start thinking about those questions, then we become gatekeepers, and we're really assuming a kind of authority that we shouldn't have. But I'm wondering how you hear that, how that sounds to you, whether there's maybe something more that we need to think about. What was your response to the refusal to release the name of the New Zealand killer? I mean, did you feel like that was the right decision? I think ultimately that decision, okay, so my my values as a human being come a little bit into conflict with the credo of journalism. I think the decision 
to not widely circulate those names. I think those names are part of the public record. I think they need to be mentioned once by the New York Times and once by the Washington Post. We're not in the business of censoring stuff, but we're also not in the business of creating outlaw legends of Jesse James about these like these horrible people that will make other people want to be similar kinds of horrible people. We, we do have some role there to balance, but it scares me even saying that out loud because I also don't think we necessarily have the equipment to make those kinds of decisions without shirking some of our duties or compromising. I mean, the, the minute we venture into that area, I start to get nervous. Yeah, but I totally but get the idea. But it sounds like there are some limits. Like, like you wouldn't want to take you know, the Unabomber's letter and, 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 and publish it. I mean, you don't want oh, to no, become, I would totally, I would totally publish it. I think, publish the, it. I think the Washington Post okay. did, too, I think. I, w- I was trying to find an example where you would say, well, I, this would clearly, clearly constitute amplifying a message that shouldn't, shouldn't be amplified, and mm-hmm. that it would actually be the, the journalist's responsibility to report the incident in some way, mm-hmm. but not to put the whole message of hate out there publicly. Right. So, I mean, to, I mean it seems to me that's the balancing Yeah. Act. No, I think that's a good place to look at it, too. But, you know, and I don't know how equipped my profession is to deal with this. But there is one area that I, I don't want to miss here. These are so often young men who get radicalized because they feel hopeless. They're, they're For the same reason, suicide rates in certain groups are going up. They feel hopeless. They don't see opportunities. They feel excluded. And, and that somehow or other, we need to start talking about that group of people. How... How, why is it easy to teach them to hate? Well, there's a, there's a lot of theories out there about who's ripe to be recruited or ripe to be into one of the, in one of these groups. None of them's perfect. None of the theories is perfect. We re- released a report earlier this year talking about and analyzing an undercurrent of misogyny in the groups. There's a real anti-woman, like an entire ideology built on that. Some of them aren't even aware of it, but that's what they're doing. That is one thing that when we look at these groups, it's a, it's a very common thread. I think that you know, educating people wherever we can about gender and what it means and how, it can, uh, how it's not the enemy is, is incredibly important. But that's taking a very humanizing approach to these people. And you don't know which ones are going to be the ones that are going to be recruited. It's, it's very hard to predict other, other than when you talk to some of the recruiters. I mean, it used to be that these guys would go to schools, you know, of, in poor neighborhoods and recruit, you know, disgruntled white teenagers who, you know, weren't on the football team, right? That, that was what they were doing. Um, now with social media, it's in, much harder to determine who is going to be recruited there, but I think that taking as many cuts as, as we can is important. See, I should admit something. In a different cell of the multiverse, I have Jennifer's job and she has my job. Because like, I always wanted to be a professor at Yale Div School and I'm really interested in all this stuff. We're talking about a world that's broken. We're talking about a, a people who perceive the world as broken, as unable to nurture them, to deliver them, to deliver love to them. We're, we're talking about really kind of a failure of agape, of all the things that really, you know, theology strives for. I mean, that's what produces these people, right? I mean, it isn't probably Satan. It's actually the failure of something else to work. Right. So there's the need for, for connection and meaning, and that we've got, a, we've got a situation where more and more people are feeling that that's, that's missing in their lives. And so 
to me, that's this is this need to create spaces for empathy and for connection. You know, Martin Luther King was right. You know, darkness doesn't drive out darkness, and, and you know, hate doesn't drive out hate. And you've got to have love, and that it should be a, just a, a real summons to people in faith communities to step up to the plate and love more, and risk being called weak because it's really not weak. This is this is the ultimate strength because love is transformative. I mean, there, there still is the question of policies and laws and, and all that, and I don't mean to discount any of that, but the final solution is a solution that is a human one of connection. This is a great panel. Thank you so much for coming out, and thanks to this panel one more time. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you.